A company's culture is shaped by a lot of things, but this is one of the most important. You have to convey your priorities clearly and repeatedly. In my experience, it's what separates great managers from the rest. If leaders don't articulate their priorities clearly, then the people around them don't know what their own priorities should be. That is from Bob Iger's entertaining book, The Ride of a Lifetime, which chronicles his journey from truly the bottom of ABC to the CEO of Disney. So we're going to discuss many of the management lessons he learned from his famed ABC sports mentor, Rune Arledge, and then talk about the rise up the ranks of capital cities. In the second half, we're going to reflect on Iger's strategic vision of three as he was becoming the CEO of Disney, which set him up for this prolific acquisition spree during his CEO tenure, including acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and 21st Century Fox. We're going to close off by looping back to our conversation of Innovator's Dilemma from last episode and see how Iger really bucked that trend of Innovator's Dilemma with his creation of Disney Plus, their streaming service. So throughout this episode, Iger is going to share many of these core mantras and leadership lessons that he gained over his own 45-year career. So get ready for an insightful episode. We'll start off in Iger's early life, where like John D. Rockefeller, he had to take this responsibility around the house because his dad, unfortunately, was dealing with these mental health problems at the time. I later learned that he'd been diagnosed with manic depression. As the older child, I bore the brunt of his emotional unpredictability. I never felt threatened by his moods, but I was acutely aware of his dark side and felt sad for him. We never knew which dad was coming home at night, and I could distinctly recall sitting in my room on the second floor of our house, knowing by the sound of the way he opened and shut the door and walked up the steps, whether it was happy or sad dad. I felt early on that it was my job to be the steady center of our family, which extended even to practical matters around the house. So we're seeing how with Bob Iger, His dad's early failures in life and issues on a mental health side are motivating him to succeed and not to be a failure. He went on to say, I was determined to work hard and learn as much as I could learn. And I think that too was related to my father, a function of never wanting to experience the same sense of failure that he felt about himself. I didn't have a clear sense of what success meant, no specific vision of being wealthy or powerful but I was determined not to live a life of disappointment. This really sets up the internal drive for Bob Iger. We're seeing his dad's failures are what drove him to succeed and work hard as we start to progress through his career in ABC and Disney. So he goes on, his career started at ABC in the mid-1970s. He started as a studio supervisor for ABC television, and he said, Before that, I'd spent a year as a weatherman and feature news reporter at a tiny cable TV station in Ithaca. So he's emphasizing in the beginning how he truly started 
from the very bottom of the food chain. He was a weatherman and then he was a studio supervisor, so one of the lowest rankings in ABC television. One of the core lessons that he shares with us from a very, very early age is about working out and waking up early. He says, to this day, I wake up nearly every morning at 4.15, though now I do it for selfish reasons, to have time to think and read and exercise before the demands of the day take over. This reminds me immediately of Ed Thorpe's phrase where he says, an hour in the gym is one less day in the hospital. I've talked about exercise a lot on the podcast, and I think this is always one of the top priorities for us. Health in general is a top priority. But we're seeing, even with Bob Iger, he would wake up that early at 4.15 from when he was the lowest in the company to the CEO, and he would make sure to prioritize his exercise time. And that was really his time that he was able to reflect on the business challenges. That should always be a priority for us. Exercise and waking up early gives us this time that's undistracted. He goes on to describe his early experience working a Frank Sinatra concert and really seeing his future boss, Rune Arledge, in action. He said, The night before the concert, they rehearsed the entire show. Howard Cossell kicked it off, introducing Frank onto the stage like a prize fighter. The stage itself was made to look like a boxing ring in the center of the arena. And then Frank came on and performed for nearly two hours. It was the first time I'd ever seen Rune in action. He watched it all, and when the rehearsal was over, he decided that more or less everything needed to be scrapped and redone. Iger goes on to describe, This is classic Rune, absolutely unwilling to accept good enough and completely comfortable pushing right up against an unmovable deadline and exhausting a lot of people along the way to make it great. So we're now going to see that Iger transitioned to Rune's office in ABC Sports, and he learned some really core lessons in his own leadership philosophy from Rune Arledge. Rune Arledge at the time, he was head of ABC Sports, and he was really known as this television royalty in the 1970s, in the 70s and 80s. And the lessons that Iger took from Arledge was around team building, storytelling, and embracing technology. So the first one is really around talent and team building. He would say, more than anyone in the history of broadcasting, he changed the way we experience televised sports. He knew, first and foremost, that we were telling stories and not just broadcasting events. And to tell great stories, you need great talent. He was the most competitive person I've ever worked for and a relentless innovator, but he also knew that he was only as good as the people he surrounded himself with. This will remind us of the PayPal stories in our conversation with Jimmy Sony, where he was saying the PayPal founders and what's known as the PayPal mafia, they believed a very similar thing. You surround yourself with such high achieving people, with the top people, and you're able to break through those limiting beliefs. You're the average of the five closest people to you. So this was a core lesson from Rune Arledge. To tell great stories, you need great talent. You need to surround yourself with great people. Now, he continued with the storytelling side. He said, 
Athletes were characters in unfolding narratives. Where did they come from? What did they have to overcome to get here? How was this competition analogous to geopolitical dramas? How was it a window into different cultures? He reveled in the idea that we were bringing not just sports, but the world into the living rooms of millions of Americans. This is really the idea that life is storytelling. Whether you're selling a product or you're raising money or you're even just making friends and appealing to new people, trying to find a partner in life, many points of life is this aspect of storytelling and Rune Arledge would seek out these deeper questions. He wasn't thinking of it as just the angle, this is a sports game, people care about the stats and the big highlight plays. He's thinking, what are the underlying stories of these athletes and how are these narratives driving the actual game? How can this add to the actual game? The next core lesson from Arledge revolved around technology. He was also the first person I ever worked for who embraced technological advancements to revolutionize what we did and how we did it. Reverse angle cameras, slow motion replays, airing events live via satellite. That's all Rune. He wanted to try every new gadget and break every stale format. He was looking always for new ways to connect to viewers and grab their attention. Rune taught me the dictum that guided me in every job I've held since. Innovate or die. And there's no innovation if you operate out of fear of the new or untested. This ended up becoming a really important lesson for Iger when he had to build Disney+, Plus, which we're going to get to much later in the episode. But innovate or die, you really can't operate out of fear. And any company, as it's approaching these challenges, these asymptotes in its growth curve, it has to innovate. It can't suffer to that disruptive innovation as we spoke about last episode. The final real mentality that he took away from Rune Arledge was this idea of not accepting good enough. So he said, his mantra was simple. Do what you need to do to make it better. Of all the things I learned from Rune, this is what shaped me most. When I talk about this particular quality of leadership, I refer to it as the relentless pursuit of perfection. It's about creating an environment in which you refuse to accept mediocrity. You instinctively push back against the urge to say, there's not enough time, or I don't have enough energy, or this requires a difficult conversation I don't want to have, or any of the many other ways we could convince ourselves that good enough is good enough. We are seeing Iger is getting this early framework, this life framework that you cannot accept mediocrity. You cannot accept good enough. And it's building this real, it's like a sports winner mentality. We know Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Kobe Bryant, they had very similar frameworks. It wasn't simply you've practiced, you've earned an NBA contract, you've made it now and you can rest on your laurels. It's really this relentless pursuit of perfection. You have to refuse to accept mediocrity if you're going to be competing in the highest stakes. And for him, I think this vision was always there to work his way up the company. Probably at this stage, it wasn't work your way up Disney because he was within ABC. It wasn't a part of Disney at the time. But there is definitely this sense of if you're going to accomplish anything, and a lot of this stems back to his father with that experience around failure, then you have to do it with the highest quality output. 
So we're now going to skip forward a few years to Capital Cities or Cap Cities surprising acquisition of ABC. ABC was a much larger company and Capital Cities, this small company, was able to come and really take in the much larger organization. So Iger wrote, in March 1985, I was 34 years old and had just been made vice president at ABC Sports when Leonard Goldenson, ABC's founder, chairman, and CEO, agreed to sell the corporation to a much smaller company, Capital Cities Communications. Cap Cities, as they were called, was a quarter the size of ABC, and they bought us for $3.5 billion. Everyone at ABC was blindsided by the announcement. How could a company like Cap Cities suddenly own a major television network? Who were these guys? How did this happen? These guys were Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. Over the years, they'd built Cap Cities, starting a small television station in Albany, New York, acquisition by acquisition. With help from Tom's close friend, Warren Buffett, who backed the $3.5 billion deal, they were able to swallow our much larger company. As Tom Murphy put it, they were the minnow that ate the whale. So Cap Cities is a very interesting company. I encourage people to read The Outsiders, which I'm going to cover in a few episodes from now if they want to learn more about it. It was really the story of great management and serial acquisitions. So Cap Cities, Tom Murphy, and Dan Burke would go and acquire small businesses, these cable stations or publishers at the time, and they would drastically cut the costs, almost doubling margins overnight and eventually getting this backing from Buffett. Buffett even called Tom Murphy and Dan Burke the best two-headed management combo that he had ever seen. So it immediately appealed to Buffett because we know Buffett is a very cost-conscious investor. This type of framework was perfect for Buffett style. And then he saw their power, their management, in even turning around a big company like ABC, who was struggling a bit at the time. Margins were eroding a little bit. So Buffett backed Cap Cities to go out and be the minnow that ate the whale, to go buy the larger company, integrate it into your firm, and increase their margins, change the company. Now, early on, Tom Murphy and Dan Burke were really integral as well as mentors and managers for Bob Iger's career. So we're going to see how they quickly recognize Bob Iger's ability within the company and his ascension within ABC Sports, his talent within the firm. And they're going to quickly promote him across the new Capital Cities company. So the first promotion, he became the senior vice president of ABC Sports Programming, and that gave him accountability over the 1988 Winter Olympics, which was this big Olympics festivity. I think it was ABC's last Olympics they hosted before their deal expired. A lot of poor weather, snowy weather, and he really proved his own intellect with that. Bob Iger was able to prove to his new managers, Tom and Dan, that he has the wherewithal to do this job. He has the capacity to do this job. Over the ensuing years, they continue to promote him at this very fast pace. They next promoted him to number two at ABC TV. And to him, he didn't have experience in TV. He had only had experience at this point, more so in sports. And they felt like they should bet on his ability to learn. So Iger would say, 
I was 37 years old. I'd primarily worked in sports, and now I would be running daytime and late night and Saturday morning television, as well as managing business affairs for the entire network. I knew precisely nothing about how any of that was done, but Tom and Dan seemed confident I could learn on the job. So we're seeing how Dan and Tom Murphy, they put this trust into they're talented individuals. They give them autonomy. It's a very decentralized management structure. So they put trust into people who they feel are talented and they bet on an ability to learn. They bet on ability over experience. And over the next few years, they continue to promote Iger from number two at ABC TV. Next up was to the president of ABC Entertainment. And ABC Entertainment, he had no experience with the script an entertainment type of background. He wasn't used to this movie-making Hollywood type of business. But again, the Cap City managers would talk about valuing ability more than experience. And they believed in putting people in roles that required more of them than they knew they had in them. It wasn't that experience wasn't important, but they bet on brains, as they put it, and trusted that things would work out if they put talented people in positions where they could grow even if they were in unfamiliar territory. So that ended up becoming a very important management framework for Bob Iger as well. He learned early on that these mentors of his are letting him rise up the ranks from SVP of ABC Sports Programming to number two at ABC TV, next up a couple years later to ABC Entertainment and the Hollywood script writing job of things. He was able to progress so quickly and they bet on his experience because they were trusting his ability to learn and he felt like he should do the same thing later in life when he was managing other creatives and other talented executives within Disney. And he describes really the most important thing in this new position. If you're put in a position where you don't have that prior experience but you feel like you're smart, you're put in a position to learn quickly, he describes how to handle this situation. The first rule is not to fake anything. You have to be humble and you can't pretend to be someone you're not or to know something you don't. There's nothing less confidence inspiring than a person faking knowledge they don't possess. In this sense, he's urging you to really lean on the people around you, the people who have that prior experience and who've been in the roles for a while. You need to show them when you don't know something you're able to pick it up from them or you're able to ask them what is missing in your own knowledge framework. And with that, he was able to quickly come up to speed with the ABC entertainment business, the movie writing business. He was able to lean on his next two people in command. He goes on to share how in his early experience at ABC entertainment, he approved this big project that ended up being a very big flop. It was called Cop Rock. It was supposed to be this musical style police show, like a cop's type of show, but suddenly they would break out into a musical arrangement. And it really didn't do well. But as he's reflecting on these these times, he shares how a core learning was how important risk-taking was in these new roles, and especially in creative roles like the job he was in then, the entertainment job. He would say, of all the lessons I learned in that first year running primetime, 
The need to be comfortable with failure was the most profound. Not with lack of effort, but with the unavoidable truth that if you want innovation, and you should always, you need to give permission to fail. This is, again, that lesson we're seeing from Rune Arledge. Innovate or die, and with that comes you need to be willing to accept failure. You're going to fail. You need to take risks. You can't be super conservative in this creative role. Now, he continued to impress Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. They kept moving up the pole chain of the Capital Cities company, the combined Cap Cities ABC company. Eventually, they put him in the president of ABC role, so really running all of what was ABC. And then Dan Burke wanted to retire. He felt like it was time for him to walk away. So Tom Murphy asked Bob Iger multiple times if he could fill that position, if he could really step into that role as COO of Capital Cities once Dan Burke retired. And he was really becoming groomed to be the next CEO of Cap Cities. Tom Murphy was also thinking about retiring in the next few years. But what stopped that next succession plan was that Disney entered the picture. It was 1995 when Michael Eisner and Disney came into the picture and they wanted to acquire Cap City's ABC for $19.5 billion, a big acquisition. And with that was placing a big responsibility on the lap of Bob Iger. He would say, one day I was in line to become the next CEO of Cap City's ABC. The next, I was being asked to run the media division of Disney for at least five years. Part of the deal is that they were requiring Bob Iger to stay on at the new company, the combined Disney Cap Cities company, for the deal to go through. So he was that important for this integration of the company. He was one of the few people who had a lot of that past experience with ABC. He was there for the integration of Cap Cities quickly rose up the ranks of Cap Cities and clearly earned the trust of Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. So he was seen as this really important component of the new company and of the acquisition. Another really important component of the acquisition was ESPN. And they talk about how ESPN's strong cash flows and its growing business over the next two decades really helped Disney. It ended up becoming a great acquisition for Disney for this reason alone, ESPN, because it helped them survive the future media consolidation and the swallowing up of smaller companies for the IP. The acquisition gave Disney the scale to remain independent when other entertainment companies were coming to the painful realization that they were too small to compete in a changing world. The assets Disney acquired in the merger, especially ESPN, drove growth for years and were a vital buffer for nearly a decade as Disney Animation struggled with a series of box office disappointments. So now in this new combined company, Bob Iger had to get used to a new way of doing things. Disney was a much larger company than Cap Cities ABC. And Cap Cities, as we learned about with Tom Murphy and Dan Burke, they had this really different way of managing people. They had this decentralized approach to management, similar to what Buffett, Warren Buffett, and Berkshire Hathaway will prioritize at their investment firm. So 
that is not the case. This sense of just trust and autonomy was not the case at the combined Disney company. Disney, as a much bigger company, had many more processes, you know, structures in place that unfortunately would slow down decision-making. Iger spoke about how this really stifled people within the new combined company. He would say, if you stuck to your budget and behaved ethically, Tom and Dan gave you room to operate with independence. Other than a CFO and a general counsel, there was no corporate staff, no centralized bureaucracy, and very little interference with the business units. Disney was the opposite of all that. In their earliest days running the company, Michael and Frank Wells had formed a central corporate unit called Strategic Planning, populated by a group of aggressive, well-educated executives. They were steeped in analysis and adept at providing the data and insight Michael needed to feel secure in every business move the company made, while he made all the creative decisions himself. So we will see later on, this is a real flaw for many companies, a very centralized decision-making model, because not only does it slow down decisions being made in this massive company, if Michael Eisner, the CEO, has to make every creative decision that's going to slow down the pace of decision-making, and most importantly, if you lose a key person, you have a really big problem. He describes one of these big problems was this dispute that Eisner had with Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time. In 1994, not long after his open heart bypass surgery, Michael forced Jeffrey to resign, which resulted in a very public, very acrimonious and expensive legal battle. On top of those struggles, Disney's animation unit began to falter. The next several years would be punctuated by a slew of expensive failures. Hercules, Atlantis, Treasure Planet, Fantasia 2000, Brother Bear, Home on the Range, and Chicken Little. I've never heard of almost all of those movies. Outside of maybe Hercules and Chicken Little, I would say most of those I haven't heard of. Whereas the first decade of Disney animation with Eisner, where it was Lion King and Aladdin, a lot of these historic movies, that was really set up the power of Disney. So we're seeing how in the mid-90s, when Eisner started dealing with these heart problems and he was having this key man risk, this main person, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was leading the Disney studio, was forced to resign. That's when decision-making started to slow down and really deteriorate in quality. And a lot of this decision-making would go all towards that strategic planning groups, what they called strat planning. This was how it was very centralized within the company. And Iger talks about strat planning was this very real problem within the combined Disney company. He was trying to do the small project. He said it was a small magazine project that he was starting up and immediately started getting pushback from one of the heads of strat planning. He said, I soon got a call from Tom Staggs, who would later be my CFO and worked then in strat planning. Tom was contacting me on behalf of his boss, Larry Murphy, who ran the entire strat planning unit. He sheepishly told me that Larry didn't allow any of Disney's businesses to expand, invest, or attempt to start anything new without a thorough analysis by his group. Once they did the analysis, 
they'd bring their recommendation to Michael. Imagine if you're this A-plus player, this type of employee who wants to work very fast, you know, move fast, break things, accomplish a lot, and someone says to you, we cannot do anything, we cannot expand, invest, or start any new project without an analysis first from strat planning and a final approval from the CEO of the company. That type of centralized decision-making would greatly reduce the motivation of top employees. And it goes against many of the management principles that I've personally learned about from people like Buffett with his decentralized structure and Tom Murphy, Dan Burke with their decentralized structure. We're going to later see when Iger becomes CEO of Disney, when he ends up getting selected as CEO of Disney, one of the first things he does is pushing to remove strap planning, basically disbanding strap planning, because he recognized that this central decision-making was not only just slowing down the company, but it was really sapping the energy of all the talent. It was sapping the energy of all these true creatives who didn't have autonomy over their work anymore. So this is another really core lesson that we learn from Bob Iger with his time under Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. Decentralized management, this framework of decentralized giving independence and autonomy, as long as someone is on track, they still have a budget and they still have to behave ethically, that will result in employees giving you much better effort than this very centralized strategic decision-making that unfortunately it will slow down companies, it will stifle innovation, and you may suffer from a key man risk. So over the next decade, with some of these issues around the centralized decision-making under Michael Eisner, the Disney CEO, Disney animation faltering, and Eisner hiring and firing a COO, Michael Ovitz, we start to see some real issues boil up at Disney. And over the next few years, we're going to start to see some of the mistakes that Michael Eisner made in his final stint as the Disney CEO. So the first of which was in the early 2000s, the media landscape was quickly changing and much of that was due to technology. There was no one who embodied that change more than Steve Jobs, who in addition to running Apple was the CEO of Pixar our most important and most successful creative partner. In the mid-90s, Disney had made a deal with Pixar to co-produce, market, and distribute five of their films. Toy Story was released in 1995 under a previous deal. It was the first full-length, digitally animated feature film, a seismic creative and technological leap, and it grossed nearly $400 million worldwide. Toy Story was followed by two more successes, a Bug's Life in 1998, and Monsters, Inc. in 2001. Taken together, those three movies grossed well over a billion dollars worldwide and established Pixar at a time when Disney animation was beginning to falter as the future of animation. So we're seeing here, Pixar is becoming the top animation player with their new animation technology, and we're going to go into much further depth with that next episode with Creativity Inc. by the Pixar founder. But Pixar was becoming the top player in animation when, in the 80s, 
Disney was really the king of animation. And it was interesting because in the beginning, Pixar was in many ways this innovator's dilemma. It was using worse technology. No one really expected it. It was the new company and they had to make a small deal, this distribution deal with Disney to distribute and co-produce market all the different Pixar films for the first five films and own the sequel rights. But at this point in the early 2000s, it was clear that Pixar was the future of animation. And the issue was Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs started fighting more often. They both had these egos on the line and they were fighting more often because Eisner had built up Disney animation into what it was. And Steve Jobs felt like Pixar needed the respect itself. He felt like Pixar was getting disrespected by Disney, which at this time in 2000s wasn't creating the quality of output as it was in the 80s. So this really marked the beginning of the end for Eisner's CEO reign. He was getting into these fights with Steve Jobs, who was becoming with Pixar one of their most important allies. And Iger would go on to say, but it was clear that Pixar was gaining swagger as Disney was losing it. And these two strong-willed personalities were destined to battle each other for supremacy. Their relationship just continued to deteriorate over the next few years to the point that Jobs said he doesn't expect to ever work with Disney again. He said, after 10 months of trying to strike a deal, we're moving on. It's a shame Disney won't be participating in Pixar's future successes. So that, for one, is this big blow for Michael Eisner's leadership career. He's now getting in fights with Steve Jobs, the CEO of their most important partner, and the true pride and joy of Disney, the Disney animation that it was built on originally with Mickey Mouse, is not the future of animation anymore. So that was a big issue for Michael Eisner, and it led to Disney's stock price dropping, shareholder selling, and eventually this really bad battle, years-long battle, with Roy Disney, who was the nephew of Walt Disney, and Roy Disney started really pushing this campaign for Eisner to retire as CEO. He created what he called the Save Disney campaign. So imagine the family member of the company, your CEO, your representative of, he's calling for the public to turn on you, to save Disney, for you to retire as CEO. So Eisner was really not handling this period very well. He was continuing his fight with Steve Jobs. He wasn't really reaching a middle ground in negotiations. Roy Disney continued to urge the public to vote against Michael Eisner as CEO. And it reached really the boiling point after a big shareholders meeting in 2004, where Roy Disney laid his case. He had this speech where he laid his case to all the shareholders of Disney against Michael Eisner. And 43% of the shareholders voted no confidence for Eisner as CEO, which is a very high percentage. So after that vote, I think Eisner had recognized that, unfortunately, he hadn't been making the right moves. Disney Animation had struggled thus far. He had gotten in this really negative relationship with Steve Jobs, who was a critical partner of Disney's, the Pixar partner, and expected not to work together in the future anymore. So 
the Disney board at this point decided that he had to be stripped of his chairman title. It was kind of that first strike. But soon later that year, he decided to step away once his contract ends. He really had realized there's there's no way to keep fighting this. If Roy Disney keeps pushing for him to be kicked out and so much of the shareholders don't believe in his abilities anymore, it may just be time for him to walk away and for the board to find a successor. So with that, the board was looking for this person in 2005. They were interviewing different people to replace Michael Eisner once he steps away by the end of 2005, beginning of 2006. And most of the board felt that it's necessary for the new CEO to be an outside candidate. Obviously, anyone close to Eisner during this really bad run of management would have that stain on their back also. And Iger, at this point, he was COO of the company. He was number two of the company. So he was in this very tough position to convince the board that he's the right man for the job without throwing Eisner under the bus, because that would look like really poor ethics. If he just says, oh yeah, all the mistakes over the last decade, that was all my predecessor's fault. That was all Michael Eisner's fault. He would say, even though formally stated that I was a candidate, I don't think anyone on the board, maybe not even George, thought I would get the job, and many of them thought I shouldn't. Handing the keys to the guy who'd been number two through five of the most difficult years in the company's history didn't exactly signal a new day. The way that Iger realized he has to counteract this negative limelight is instead of focusing on the past issues, he would just say whenever they ask him about the past, that's the past, there's really nothing I could do about it anymore. And he would reshift the question towards the future. What does he see as the vision for Disney and the future? And his future vision, I would say his vision of three or his three priorities for where Disney should go as a company, really is what sold the board on him as the next CEO. The other leading person was Meg Whitman, who was CEO of eBay at the time. But they really felt like after the pitch from Iger, even with all the negative press, negative limelight surrounding him, they felt like he was the right person for the job. So this is his three vision priorities. Number one, we needed to devote most of our time and capital to the creation of high quality branded content. In an age when more and more content was being created and distributed, we needed to bet on the fact that quality will matter more and more. With an explosion of choice, consumers needed an ability to make decisions about how to spend their time and money. Great brands would become even more powerful tools for guiding consumer behavior. This is a theme we've seen play out in the internet age where you really can't be the middle of the pack. Either you have to be some of the top IP, like the highest quality content, which was really the strategy that Disney played into with their later Pixar, Marvel types of acquisitions, or you have to go the route of user-generated content and recommending the most interesting content like YouTube videos or TikTok videos out of a vast trove of probably pretty bad content. This is Ben Thompson's aggregation theory where tech companies are really able to curate 
the vast amount of content for the consumer and personalize it. The other side of that, the side that Iger leaned into, was this idea of high quality branded content. And that's what set him up for his IP acquisition spree. Now back to Iger. Number two, we needed to embrace technology to the fullest extent, first by using it to enable the creation of higher quality products and then to reach more consumers in a more modern, more relevant ways. Unless consumers had the ability to consume our content in more user-friendly, more mobile, and more digital ways, our relevance would be challenged. This is referring to his eventual bet on Disney+. Plus. He was recognizing this shift in the landscape for content consumption with streaming, people being able to consume content on their laptops, on streaming services, instead of strictly in theaters or DVD devices, the old types of distribution methods. So he's seeing how we really have to embrace technology. Otherwise, our business model is at risk. Number three, we needed to become a truly global company. We were broad with our reach, doing business in numerous markets around the world, but we needed to better penetrate certain markets particularly the world's most populous countries like China and India. If our primary focus was on creating excellent branded content, the next step was to bring that content to a global audience, firmly planting our roots in these markets and creating a strong foundation to grow significantly in scale. That last point we really saw play out with the large Disneyland investment and opening in Shanghai in China and a lot of the box office successes that they've had for these global movies, like the Marvel movies. Iger, once he was placed as the CEO of the company and he had this clear vision of three priorities lists, high quality content, technology, and international, his first step was to reach out to Steve Jobs and try to repair that relationship with Pixar. What Iger did to get back into Steve Jobs' good graces was basically offering to put three of Disney's top TV shows on the new iPod, which Steve Jobs was just working on. So Iger agreed to put Lost, one of the popular shows at the time, and a couple other shows on this new iPod. And that was really this olive branch to Steve Jobs. It was showing him that you could trust Iger and Disney again. After that, with Steve Jobs and Pixar in the back of Iger's mind, he was touring one of the Disneylands and he was starting to notice that all the characters that kids were dressing up as and the most prominent characters at the park were all the new Pixar characters, like the Toy Story characters, Andy and Buzz Lightyear, and like the Monsters, Inc. character. So at this point, Iger realized that acquiring Pixar would be the best step forward for Disney. And he wanted to show the board how bad of a position Disney animation was in at the time. The board didn't really understand. They knew that they had suffered from a lot of misfires, but they didn't really know how bad of a position it was in. So Iger told his team to put together this whole report showing where is Disney animation today? Where was it over the last decade? And the picture of that presentation was basically that over the last decade, Disney animation had lost $400 million on $1 billion budget. So it had spent $1 billion 
on new movies and content, Hercules, all those other movies we mentioned. And cumulatively, it had lost money on those movies. It wasn't successful investments. So he was able to show the board how critical all these characters in the Pixar universe is and how much Disney animation is suffering. And now it was at the point where he was pitching them, Disney should acquire Pixar. This is how we revitalize Disney animation and acquire the future of animation as we know now. Pixar had become the future of animation. He said, I pointed out to the board that as animation goes, so goes the company. In many respects, Disney animation was the brand. It was the fuel that powered many of our other businesses, including consumer products, television, and theme parks. And over the last 10 years, the brand had suffered a lot. So his total pitch to the board was that they should fully buy out Pixar, which was a big proposition. Pixar was no small company anymore in the mid-2000s. So he ended up creating this agreement with Steve Jobs after convincing Steve Jobs that they would buy Pixar for about $7.4 billion. And that was roughly $6.4 billion when you consider the cash that Pixar had in the bank. But his rationale, Iger's rationale with this acquisition, it may seem expensive. He was certainly criticized for the high dollar amount at the time, was that not only would it bring what Pixar called their brain trust of animation talent to Disney now, you would have access to the sequels, future sequels of Toy Story and Cars and The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., all these movies. You have that core high-quality IP but also the talent, the top talent of Pixar, John Lasseter, who was the creative side, and Ed Catmull, who really created the computer animation, he realized that he could put them in charge of Disney animation as well, and they would revitalize Disney animation. So it was not just an acquisition of Pixar, because when the two companies come together, it would also completely turn around their own firm, Disney Animation, which was a stalwart back in its day, it had many of the big hits like Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Aladdin. So it's able to bring Disney Animation back to that point with the new leadership, the Pixar leadership in place. And that has certainly happened. We've seen over the last few years, some of the biggest animation movies like the Frozen movies and like Encanto came out of Disney animation. That didn't come out of Pixar. We could also recognize how this, in many ways, was another form of an innovator's dilemma. In the very beginning, when Disney first started working with Pixar, it was this new form of computer animation. Disney had always done other sketch-drawn methods of animation, so it was a new form of animation. It was worse at first. It was this disruptive technology but its pace of improvement was faster than the sketch animation as computers were getting better and Ed Catmull was working on the technology with his fellow grad students. The capabilities were getting much better, so it was becoming this true innovator's dilemma for Disney, and clearly their Disney animation business was suffering because of it. And Iger realized, how do we solve innovator's dilemma? How did Christensen say that one of the ways we could solve this innovator's dilemma 
It's to acquire a small company that is specializing in that disruptive innovation and let them be independent, keep them independent, let them have that autonomy. And that is really what convinced Pixar and Steve Jobs that this is the right acquisition for them. Bob Iger, when he was pitching Steve Jobs, he really played up to his past background on the other side of the acquisition. Keep in mind, he was both acquired when he was at ABC by Capital Cities, and he was acquired when he was at Capital Cities by Disney. So he basically said to Jobs, he said, I know what it's like to be taken over by another company. Even if it isn't purposeful, the buyer often destroys the culture of the company it's buying, and that destroys value. In most cases, what they're really acquiring is people. In a creative business, that's where the value truly lies. He was showing Jobs that he understands the Pixar creative talent is the real juice and energy of this acquisition. And he recognized this is a disruptive threat for my business, but I'm going to keep you independent. I'm not going to try to completely change your culture and try to integrate you fully into Disney. All I'm going to do is get the top talent, John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, and have them review Disney animation as well. But outside of that, Pixar is going to operate as its own division. It's going to make its own films and Pixar has continued to be an incredibly successful investment for Disney ever since they acquired it back then. Once he completed the Pixar acquisition, he continued to think about how can he build out this high-quality content, this high-quality IP. Who possessed great IP that could have applications across the full range of our business? Two companies came immediately to mind, Marvel Entertainment and Lucasfilm. I wasn't steeped in Marvel lore, but you didn't have to be a lifelong reader of the comics to know it was a trove of compelling characters and stories that would plug easily into our movie, television, theme park, and consumer products businesses. So he is doubling down on this IP, high-quality content strategy, even though Marvel at the time, they had actually licensed away their rights, they would given away the rights, to many of the top characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Spider-Man was with Sony, X-Men was with Fox at the time. So some of these most popular characters weren't even part of Marvel. And a lot of people thought it may not be smart to go after Marvel because how many great comic characters do they really have left? They've given away all their best characters. Iger recognized that within this trove of comics, there are hundreds of new characters that we could create storylines around. So he decided he wants to pursue Marvel. He started negotiating with Marvel, and that's when he came up against Ike Perlmutter, who was this Israeli guy, an ex-military man who would buy up distressed companies, and he actually became in control of Marvel by wrestling it away from Carl Icahn in the 90s. He'd arrive in the United States with next to nothing and by virtue of his own smarts and tenacity had become wildly successful. So again, just like Steve Jobs, Ike Perlmutter was worried about transitioning a company and losing control. He didn't know if he wanted to sell his company, Marvel. And at the time, Marvel wasn't the company it is today, the Marvel you know releasing huge box office hits every couple months, but 
it had just released Iron Man, which was a success, and it released Hulk. So it had two successful movies, but nothing to what it is today. At the time, though, this was really still the pride of Ike Perlmutter, the CEO, and he didn't know if he wants to part with his company. But what really got him to turn to the other side, be willing to sell, was a call from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs went to bat for Iger and he vouched for him in his own acquisition experience. Steve told him that the Pixar deal far exceeded his expectations because I lived up to my word and respected the brand and the people. Later, after we closed the deal, Ike told me that he'd still had his doubts and the call from Steve made a big difference. I think what's really important here is that your reputation will really follow you. If you treat people the right way, and Iger talks a lot within the book about treating people with respect and with integrity, but if you treat people the right way, that reputation will follow you, both in interviews, when you're trying to acquire new companies, when you want to date people, that reputation follows you. People hear about how you act towards others, and it's a reflection of you. So we see Steve Jobs vouching for Bob Iger helped him end up getting the Marvel acquisition, which was a similarly massive acquisition for Disney. Ike got what he wanted. He stayed in charge, stayed involved with the new intertwined Marvel. Kevin Feige, he's the one who became really head of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and created this web of different characters, devising what was later, as we know, the Avengers, bringing a bunch of stars into a a single movie, crossing stories between the different movies. So it created this whole web that people continue to be very interested in. I'm a big Marvel and Pixar and Star Wars fans. So the Disney episode is right up my wheelhouse, really. But Disney, with this Marvel acquisition, they end up making the acquisition for $4 billion. It was less than the Pixar deal because, like I said, the company was much further behind than Pixar. It really only had Iron Man and Hulk as their two big feature films at the time. But since this day, Marvel, they've spent a total of about $10 billion in combined $4 billion acquisition costs and another $6 billion of movie production costs. And they have north of $26 billion in box office revenue. And as we know, they have many huge hits from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like the Avengers movies, Avengers Endgame and Black Panther, Captain America Civil War. So we see these Marvel movies are some of the few movies that even post-pandemic continue to be the hits. All of that goes back to Iger's strategy of high quality content. The last of Iger's big three IP high-quality content acquisitions was of Lucasfilm in the Star Wars brand. So this again, this story, will also reinforce that idea that we just shared. Reputation will follow you around even decades later. Iger shared some of his conversation with George Lucas. This is how it went down. He nodded as I talked. I'm not really ready to sell, he said, but you're right. And if I decide to, there isn't anyone I want to sell to but you. He recalled young Indiana Jones and how much he had appreciated that I'd given the show a chance, even when it didn't have the ratings. And then he brought up what we'd done with Pixar, which at some point Steve must have spoken to him about. You did that right, he said. You took care of them. If I get around to it, 
you're the only call I'll make. Young Indiana Jones was basically, Bob Iger was working with George Lucas in the 80s, and it was a show that didn't do very well, but Bob Iger ended up giving him a second season. And that act of giving him a second season, showing him that he's going to trust George Lucas as this famous director, give him another chance, was something that, even though the show ended up failing, it stayed in the mind of George Lucas. He remembered that Iger is someone who he could trust. Lucas would believe that his baby would be in good hands at Disney, as Iger would say. His baby would be in good hands at Disney. Lucasfilm and Star Wars would be in good hands with his trusted peer, Bob Iger. So George Lucas, they continued negotiating with Star Wars. They were asking for the Pixar deal, which is basically a seven, seven and a half billion dollar deal. Iger immediately pretty much turned that down. He said, we already sensed Lucasfilm was potentially quite valuable for us, but it wasn't worth 7.4 billion, at least not based on our analysis at that point. When we were pursuing Pixar, there were six movies already in varying stages of production. Pixar also came with a big group of world-class engineers, seasoned directors, artists and writers, and a real production infrastructure. So this was a more challenging acquisition, Lucasfilm, because, again, he was really taking the baby of George Lucas. Star Wars was the thing he had worked on almost all his life. Eventually, he convinced George Lucas that Star Wars doesn't have the same value as Pixar. It didn't have the next three movies in the pipeline anymore. Disney really had to create the movies 7, 8, and 9 and all the other Disney shows that they've built since then. But it does have this very valuable brand. You are buying this valuable IP. So he ended up completing that acquisition a little bit over $4 billion, about $4.05 billion, as a signal a little bit to Marvel. He wanted to get at least more than Marvel. If he's not going to get Pixar money, then at least he gets more than Marvel. But this completes this three-pronged IP acquisition strategy, and now we're seeing Iger's vision really shape into place. He bought Pixar, which revived Disney animation. As Disney animation goes, so does the company. So he's writing the ship of the company with Disney animation and Pixar, really the future of animation at, at this time now. He brought in Marvel, which became the big winner of the comic book and the superhero last decade. And then he brought Star Wars with its incredibly devoted fan base and rich fantasy lore. The next step of Iger's Vision of Three was integrating and enabling technology, new forms of distribution with technology to the end consumer. So we were seeing in the early decade, in the early 2010s, Netflix was starting to push up its streaming offerings, and it was really the only streaming provider. And streaming was really this disruptive innovation, as we go back to the Innovator's Dilemma episode, it was this disruptive innovation compared to the legacy cable providers. In the beginning, customers may look at streaming and they may see slower load times or worse quality content or just limited selection. Netflix obviously didn't have the same selection that a typical cable provider has in the beginning. As we know with disruptive innovations, if the pace of innovation is fast enough, 
it will eventually cross, it will intersect with that sustaining technology. So we've seen over the last few years, and especially now we're in this, what people call the streaming wars, the technology, streaming technology has improved so much. It's improved at a faster rate that now people certainly have good enough quality graphics on streaming technology. And certainly there's good selection and load time is definitely fast enough. But now people aren't looking at the actual functionality because streaming matches cables functionality. Now they're looking at convenience instead. The vector of value changes from functionality to convenience. Streaming, you could do it while you travel, you could do it on your computer, you could do it on your phone, on your TV. So it was this clear disruptive innovation and Iger was recognizing as the CEO of Disney, this is a real disruptive risk for us. He was saying this as he was talking to his board of directors. Did we have the stomach to start cannibalizing our own still profitable businesses in order to begin building a new model? Could we disrupt ourselves and would Wall Street tolerate the losses that we would inevitably incur as we try to truly modernize and transform the company? These are the questions that he's asking his board and they're very real questions. Are you willing to let go of your existing profits to build the product for the disruptive innovation? And that's exactly what we saw with the Innovator's Dilemma episode. These incumbents will have a great business based on the sustaining technology and the new disruptive innovation. It may be better technology, streaming certainly, the convenience of it may be better than cable, but it also may erode the business model. You may have this very real business model risk. The business model risk for Disney was that they were getting a lot of money from Netflix at the time. Iger would say, Pooling all of our TV shows and movies, including Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars, from Netflix's platform and consolidating them all under our own subscription service would mean sacrificing hundreds of millions of dollars in licensing fees. So we are clearly seeing there is a very real business model erosion that you have to be comfortable with if you are an incumbent who is going to go after a disruptive technology. Iger would go on to say, the decision to disrupt businesses that are fundamentally working but whose future is in question, intentionally taking on short-term losses in the hope of generating long-term growth, requires no small amount of courage. This reminds me of the Hard Things About Hard Things episode, Ben Horowitz, famous VC and startup founder, who was also encouraging us as managers that we need to have courage to take the risks and make the hard decisions. And we're seeing here with Iger as well, you really need to have courage to face up against these disruptive innovations. And I truly think in many ways, it probably often takes a founder to make this type of decision. If it's a career CEO who is on a revolving door, gets criticized by Wall Street, any decision they make, it's going to be hard for them to walk away from hundreds of million dollars from Netflix money. But luckily, Iger at this point in the 2015-2016 period, he was now really a safe CEO. He had been there for a decade. He had proven himself with the Pixar acquisition, turning around 
Disney animation. So at least he had showed the company that this is not just a far-fetched bet. This is a very real risk. And we have to take a leap here to face up to this disruptive technology. As his mentor, Rune Arledge, used to say to him, innovate or die. If you don't innovate, you will die. So how did they innovate? How did they avoid this disruptive innovation that was hurting so many of their competitors? The first thing they did was invest in this company called BAMTech. They took a small, a third stake of BAMTech, which was the streaming technology that was powering other providers. It powered the MLB and it powered HBO Max's service. So this was a, the first step that they were able to invest in the underlying technology and get exposure to this streaming race. They're able to see what it takes, the technology infrastructure, to be in streaming. And Iger would go on to say, as they got a controlling stake in BAMTech, that is what allowed them to launch Disney Plus and ESPN Plus as these direct-to-consumer apps. So they took a small stake of BAMTech. Over the next year or so, they slowly increased their position. They saw that streaming is becoming more and more of a disruptive threat. The board was understanding the real issue here. And Iger was recognizing the big risk of disruptive innovation. He gave this amazing speech to the board about literally innovators' dilemma. I know why companies fail to innovate, I said to them at one point. It's tradition. Tradition generates so much friction every step of the way. I talked about the investment community, which so often punishes established companies for reducing profits under any circumstances, which often leads businesses to play it safe and keep doing what they've been doing rather than spend capital in order to generate long-term growth or adapt to change. It's your choice, I said. Do you want to fall prey to the innovator's dilemma or do you want to fight it? This is textbook Clayton Christensen. He is pointing out how many businesses, they have those rational manager incentives in place where they have high profit margins and high revenues growth that they have to keep up. So they play it safe with their sustaining innovations and they don't invest or pursue those lower margin, those newer projects that are potentially disruptive to their sustaining innovation. And we see here with Disney Plus, their effort now to build out their own streaming platform. We see Iger, in many ways, he kind of bucked the trend of Innovator's Dilemma as the incumbent, as this massive media and content provider. But as we saw from the Innovator's Dilemma, even when the incumbents buck the trend, it usually happens a little late and it oftentimes results in the innovator only surviving the next era, not necessarily leading it. And I think that's stayed true to today. We see Disney Plus is one of the big streaming services, but it's certainly not the leader. I would say Netflix, probably most people would still look at as the leader, and that's because it still started late compared to Netflix. Netflix had maybe a seven, eight, 10 year lead on Disney in the streaming race. He knew as he was pitching this to Wall Street, he had to show them a new focus rather than profits because clearly there's they're sacrificing money. They're sacrificing the licensing money from Netflix and their 
reinvesting more capital into building Disney Plus. So he would say, the cost of building the app and creating the content combined with the losses incurred by undercutting our own traditional businesses meant we'd reduce our profits by a few billion dollars a year over the first few years. It would take some time before success would be measured in profits. First, it would be measured in subscribers. We wanted the service to be accessible to as many people as possible around the world, and we had settled on a price that we estimated would bring in somewhere between 60 to 90 million subscribers in the first five years. COVID and the pandemic helped them quickly surpass that number. I believe they're now around 160, 165, 164 million subscribers. But I will point out that around 60 million of those subscribers come from India's Hotstar service, a really popular content service in India. And those subscribers are at a much lower revenue base per user, ARPU it's called, than customers in the US. In India, the average cost is around $1.20 for the Hotstar service. So 60 million people are paying around 120 versus another 100 million in the US and in kind of the West Coast nations may be paying closer to their $8 a month or $7 a month ad-supported or non-ad-supported plans. So Disney definitely did well with their subscriber number. They surpassed their subscriber number, and now the target is higher if you look at it. But a big issue today when people look at the streaming wars, they've been successful in stopping the innovator's dilemma. They're clearly a competitor in the streaming wars. The real problem is that everyone now is a competitor in the streaming wars. After Disney did it, Peacock came out with one, Paramount Plus came out with one, so now there's really a lot of different players in this streaming wars, and many of them are not profitable. Many of them are still taking those operating losses. It's hurting their old incumbent businesses. But on the brighter hand of things, I would say Disney Plus is probably in one of the better positions as this big content provider alongside Netflix. It's probably well positioned to buy up other providers or at least benefit once companies realize this simply isn't going to work. The math and profitability isn't going to work for a small streaming service once the streaming wars slow down and consolidation really begins. So Iger successfully helped the large incumbent company avoid the innovator's dilemma. He knew about innovator's dilemma. He laid it out greatly in his speech to the board, and he kept in his mind his simple framework innovate or die. We may have to have the courage in these tough times and take on short-term losses in pursuit of long-term growth or adapting to change. The final acquisition of Iger's CEO tenor was that of 21st Century Fox, which was a much bigger acquisition than his three previously, bigger than all three of them combined, actually. And this was buying many of Fox's assets from Rupert Murdoch, the famous content and media founder of Fox. So he was buying basically their movie studio, Hulu stake, FX, National Geographic, international content, all these different arms, basically anything but Fox News and Fox Sports Channel. And with that was 
a little bit of risk because it was such a big acquisition. He said of it, the potential felt almost limitless and so did the risk. He first negotiated this acquisition about $28 a share, which was $52 billion for the company, for the Fox assets. And they had agreed on this price. Fox and Disney Iger had agreed on this price. But unfortunately, a bidding war started with Comcast, the big cable distributor and internet distributor. And that pushed the price up to $71 billion. So they had originally agreed on this $52 billion number. And suddenly now they're left paying about $19 billion more for the asset. This was all in 2019. So it was right before the pandemic. It was a big acquisition. And I think this acquisition, since it was so recent, it's still early to tell what the effect on Disney will be. Certainly, we can't say how successful it was compared to a Pixar or a Marvel, but it brought a lot of valuable assets to Disney, a lot of valuable content that they could put on a Disney Plus, for example, or they could integrate into Hulu with the full ownership now. So that basically wraps up Bob Iger's first tenure as CEO. As we've seen now, he recently came back to the company, returned as CEO again of Disney. And really, I think the reason he's coming back is because the succession plan with Bob Chapek didn't seem to work out. So I think part of it is Iger wants to come back and ensure the right succession plan this time, put the right person in charge of Disney and improve Disney Plus's profitability. Like we said, the streaming wars, a lot of these companies are not profitable right now and it's kind of a money pit. But I think with his track record, analysts are going to give him much more leeway than they would have Bob Chapek. He's going to see much more ability to make those creative decisions and those risks like we saw with Disney Plus. That was a big jump, an innovator's dilemma type of jump. But Iger will get the ability to make these tough decisions where it is necessary. Now, the main leadership lessons and mantras that I took away from Bob Iger throughout his book, and we've shared it across the episode, are these. To tell great stories, you need great talent. Innovate or die. Refuse to accept mediocrity. Take responsibility when you screw up. Valuability more than experience. Become comfortable with failure. Convey your priorities clearly and repeatedly. And finally, lead with integrity and respect. So that wraps up Bob Iger's book, A Ride of a Lifetime. He's a hero in my book, as you could tell. I'm a big fan of Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars. And he definitely shared so many great lessons that we could learn about managing people and taking risks, taking these creative risks, innovating or dying. We could end on a final lesson from him. If you're in the business of making something, be in the business of making something great. I hope you guys learned a lot and thanks again for listening.